Hello, I'm Amanda Decadme, and you're listening to The Conversation, a show where I talk to the people I find most inspiring about the issues and life experiences that really matter. This week on The Conversation, I'm speaking to Megan McCain. There's a lot that Megan and I really agree on. There's a couple of things that we really don't agree on, like gun control and pro-choice. I'm pro-choice, she is not. However, there is a lot that we do agree on. There's a lot that we see eye to eye on. And I really enjoyed talking to her. We talked about what it was like working at Fox under Roger Ailes during the Me Too movement. We talked about her experience as a host on The View and how her mistreatment there coincided with having really severe postpartum anxiety. We talked about the death of her father, John McCain, and how the grief has stayed with her ever since. And we also talked about why she may be reconsidering her perspective on the Brett Kavanaugh, Christine Blasey Ford testimony. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Welcome to the conversation. I am. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you for saying yes to this. I want to start out just by saying that I am excited to talk to you and I want to say up front that I, I would like this to be your first non-political interview. How does that sound? I would love that because I'm sick of politics right now. But I have a confession to make to you, Amanda. I'm a huge fan of yours for like a really, really long time because I'm a child of the 90s. And I remember when you used to hang out with Courtney Love and like, I'm a huge fan of hers forever and always. And I just love your work. I love the interviews you do. I interviewed you a while ago on a show I worked on in Los Angeles like 10 years ago, if not longer. It was like 2011. Um, you probably don't remember it. I think we talked about um, body positivity and I just loved your energy. And I find myself drawn to really strong women in all facets of life. It's like my wheelhouse. And um, I you just like represent so much that I think women should be doing and saying. And I'm sure we disagree on a lot of things, but I love strong, direct women who don't vacillate on who they are and what they believe. And I'm just a huge fan of yours. Thank you so much. And thank you for sharing that story about when you interviewed me back when the conversation came out. I wanted to interview you because I also have respect for women who take ownership of who they are and who are direct and unapologetic about their truths. And you represent that. And yes, I'm sure we do disagree on some things, but I'm sure we also cross over on a lot of things. And, you know, that's that's good for me. <laughs> right. I really found in my life that um, very strong feminists, no matter which side of the aisle they're on, like women who know what it feels like to have deep, intense misogyny directed at you. Um, I, I bond with I, I too. I I would say that I know Hillary Clinton on a social level as well. And every time I see portrayals of her or articles about her where the headline in and of itself is deeply sexist or the impression of her is something that's clearly just would be said about a woman. I get really viscerally upset about her and many, many women. But um, I have found in my life professionally and personally that there's a lot of crossover with strong feminists. And Like Amber Tamblin is a good friend of mine and she's completely on the opposite. She actually did a show where she based one of her characters, like some of it she has said publicly was inspired by me in a good way, which is nice. Um, and I just have found that I find it a lot easier to talk politics and finding things that we all connect on with women than men. I always have. The common thread, I think, that women who are opinionated feminists have is that we do experience misogyny. It's connecting, right? Just woman to woman. Remove everything else. That's that's the, the places where where I have empathy and compassion, because the truth is, is that we're, we're, we're all experiencing a similar version of the same thing. I had an expectation. I'm 37. So when you're like, get to this age, especially when you become a mom, which is like such a cliche, but it's true. Cliche really for a reason. It's exactly. But I really expected the world to be a different place. I had the luxury, even though I grew up in like a very conservative household, obviously, my dad um, really empowered me and my mother, but my dad really like from a young age really empowered me to like speak up. So I went into the world assuming this is what it's like for women, obviously, and then I had an extremely rude awakening when I started working in media. And I really fear, I think having a daughter, you just fear, it's toxic is an overused word, but it's a really toxic, dangerous environment for women to still be in, especially when they're strong. And I get more enraged and more defiant in, in where we're at now 
uh, than I ever thought I would be, if that makes sense. And I, I'm deeply disappointed that I, I'm less, it is important to me that a woman becomes president in my lifetime. Well, Kamala is going to be president for a day when Biden <laughs> has his colonoscopy. It's one day. It's the only time that there has been a female president in the United States is when he hands over for the because of his colonoscopy. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm rambling, but go ahead. No, I mean, so much comes into focus when you have a child, but especially a daughter. And, you know, I know that you suffered after you gave birth. You had a, a medical issue and you had a mental health issue. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about what that experience was yeah. like for you. So I had a really bad miscarriage before I had my daughter. And I'm sorry. I sort of, well, thank you. I It's horrible. And I want more women to talk about it because I found it very embarrassing and humiliating and debilitating. And I felt like my body had like failed you. Me, and I was doing it on TV, um, obviously. You know, I just want to say I also had multiple miscarriages and I wish that more people would talk about it. So maybe we can both start talking about it more. I had a DNC and the process of having that is horrific. It's kind of graphic, but like afterward having to wear like giant pads and bleed as much and have so much tissue come out of you and everything. It was like a form of birth. It's horrific. 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 I would not wish it on anyone else. I would. Sorry. Can I just ask how, how far in the pregnancy were you when you had the miscarriage? So I've actually had two as well, um, which I haven't talked about publicly because, again, there's like a lot of shame and one happened not semi-recently. Um, but the first time it was like the second month. And then recently it was early. It was like six weeks. And I feel like what has been hard for me is that you see a lot of beautiful images of women and motherhood in the world, which is great. Like I'm fantastic if you are like Pinterest, perfect Instagram model ready all day long. I'm not. My life's a mess half the time. And, you know, I was working on The View, obviously, and um, the stories on The View at the time were just like, I'm pregnant and there's baby showers with the whole uh, show with the children. And um, my my producers knew I was pregnant and then even having to say I'm having a miscarriage and like this isn't going to happen. It was just so Mm -hmm. many things that were horrible and hard and. I always preface my stories with like, I understand I'm coming from a place of extreme privilege. I have access to healthcare. I have a you know wonderful husband. I have a community and a support system that's incredible. But even with all these luxuries, it doesn't make it less painful. It doesn't. And let me ask you another question. Because of the miscarriages, when you did get pregnant this time, did you have a lot of anxiety about that pregnancy because of having had miscarriages? Yes. A friend of mine said, when you have a miscarriage, it takes away... Um, the excitement of being pregnant, like the pregnancy test, because there's this anxiety of what if this doesn't happen? Yeah. What if for whatever reason it's not, you know, the viable for whatever reason it doesn't happen? Um, I, I wrote an article about it in the New York Times. I was actually worried it was going to leak online. Um, so I, I took control of the story because I didn't want anyone else to tell it except me. I read that you had postpartum anxiety. So I wondered what your experience was. It was like a confluence of things, I think. And obviously it happens to so many millions of women. But I I was pregnant during COVID. Um, I am a controversial person that people really love to hate. I was working in an environment where I've, I've been very open about it because quite frankly, I was worried that I was going to have like a few glasses of wine at some dinner and be too mouthy because I talk and I'm a sharer. I didn't want to be a hypocrite and say one thing to my girlfriends in private and then say another thing publicly. So I felt like talking about how having postpartum anxiety and being in an environment that isn't necessarily the most, you know, supportive post baby and knowing what it did to me was an important story to share. I was really, I was in COVID. I was isolated. Um, you couldn't, I did, wasn't able to have like the normal things women could have when they have babies. Community, I mean, like, celebration, yes. support, generational yeah. insight, women, yes. elders, girlfriends. Right. Yes. Yeah. My sister-in-law lives pretty close down the street and we're very close. I just remember being absolutely apoplectic and hysterical because she couldn't come over because we were worried about COVID. And then um, she works on Capitol Hill, so she had access to testing more. So there was a certain point where if she like hadn't gone uh, in big groups and she could get tested, she could come over for a period of time. But it was very isolating. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. I still don't know what the fuck I'm doing, but I really didn't know what the fuck I was doing 
at all in the beginning and like trying to get them to sleep and Isn't eat it and all crazy? these things. You so, give birth and they give you the baby like in the carrier <laughs> to go home and you get home and you're like, now what? <laughs> and they're so tiny and you're just like, you know, I was, but I did what you did. Like I was obsessed. No one could be around her or touch her. I was like, my husband can't do this as well as I can. Um, You know, the, the few people that even the doctor, I was like, something bad is going to happen to her. I need to be around her. I was like sleeping in her nursery on the floor, which is insane. Um, and I went to a doctor's appointment for her and, um, they do a questionnaire for mothers at the, I believe it was the one month visit, but it's all such a blur. And I had to fill out a questionnaire, which I thought was so stupid at the time. I was like, why am I doing this? And by the way, most and, um, of the time you can't even remember what your last name is at that stage of the game. You're just like, <laughs> is my baby fed and needs a diaper change? And that's all I can handle. And just like trying to get them in their clothes, in the car seat, in the car, to the doctor. Like it was like this whole fucking thing. And then they have to eat all the time. And you're like, eh, whatever. And I looked like, hell, oh, whatever. It's totally normal, I found out. But um, I failed the questionnaire. Like just failed it spectacularly. It was and a mental health questionnaire? Said, yeah. It was like how are you, what's your anxiety level? Are you comfortable with other people around your child? And the doctor was like, this isn't good. Um, you know, and you need to call your OBGYN immediately. And I was like, I'm fine. I'm fine. And my husband was in the room when she talked to us afterward and he was like, she's not fine. Like she's not. And so I was shocked that he said that because he hadn't shared that with me like at that time. And then I called my OBGYN and told her what happened. And then she had me come in and she diagnosed me and I was embarrassed and ashamed. And then also dealing with the fact that I was literally convinced that people were going to climb in through the windows of our home and kidnap my daughter. And when I would go for a walk with her in the like carriage, I was scared that people were going to like push me to the ground, try and kill me and steal her because they hated me so much for my political beliefs. And the hate on the internet had become so intense and then it got even worse when I came back to The View because the insurrection happened three days after I returned. And there was just a lot of anger and aggression, understandably. But it seemed like I, I'm i an avatar for so many things for so many There's people. There's a lot of that, projection onto you. Yes. But what do you think What yeah. do you think was underneath that anxiety for you? Um, I was just scared that someone was going to steal her. I was scared someone was going to hurt her. I was scared that she was going to get sick. I was scared that... It was overwhelming fear and and not letting other people help me help her, including my husband, to the point that it was debilitating. And I got on medication, um, which I always say I am such a proponent of getting on antidepressants when you need it. I, I had an ego about it originally, and then I was just so desperate. I was like, fuck it. I, I, I will do whatever. I, I did too. I was like, I should be able to handle this and find a way to make this work. And I couldn't. And I also went on medication and it really, really helped me get up and out of the place that I was in. So I feel the same way. Me too. I felt way better. Uh, like when I was thinking, I was like, thank God that this exists. And thank God that I had doctors that could, you know, that are specialists that understand what happened. The reality is, is that there is a very real fear that, that, that something crazy could happen to your kid because there is a lot projected onto you and we live in a really insane world, right? So part yeah. of what you were fearing was was real. And then there was the then there was the other part, which is the unrealistic fears, right? And also when you're a new parent, at least for me, a lot of things that I had not processed in my life came up. And I'm wondering if anything came up for you in having your daughter. Was there anything that you were like, oh, God, this this, this um, something that you just hadn't processed in your life that was also going into perpetuating that fear that you had? Oh, many things. I didn't even know if I wanted to have kids and I didn't know if I would could do it. I didn't know if I could like mentally and emotionally do it. I wasn't sold on the idea. And then when we finally decided to really try and I got pregnant, like, as soon as I found out I was pregnant, COVID happened and I was like petrified and trying to figure out what to do. Um, when she was born, I was not like natural to this. When I was pregnant, I wasn't like, I'm pregnant, look at my tummy. And I'm, I was like trying to deal with the fact that I felt like all my independence and autonomy and my strength was going to leave, which is a stereotype I didn't find actually to be accurate now. Um, but part of it is I find that there's like one version of motherhood. And I don't fit into it. And I didn't either. And I, I also felt the same as you. I had a lot, a lot of, of challenges in my pregnancies. And so I 
also had that fear of like, oh, my my autonomy, my independence, my career is all going to go and I'm going to be this other person that I don't want to be. So how do I how do I reconcile this and show up and be a mom, but also not lose myself? So how did you feel when you were going through this experience? I was really scared. Um, You know, we associate so much with our careers. I was like, I'm going to be irrelevant. And, you know, I'm just going to be like in a mom category now. And no one's going to, I'm not going to be able to be this like intense, strong person anymore because we have, for whatever reason, we like culturally have this issue with putting strength with motherhood, which is bizarre because it's the hardest thing I've ever done. You have to be strong in every way to do this. So I don't understand why it's just like women on lily pads and just like, and I really have a problem with the um with the idea that I should have had hair and makeup done when I gave birth, which is also what? a thing That's that a, a thing? lot of people in, a lot of women I know did You're that kidding. and have done that. It's it was like a hellscape, like whatever. Wow. Um, so I just wish we would all just let women go through the process of motherhood in whatever way it comes out. But I I found a lot of it very toxic. I found a lot of it like that impacted me because I was like I'm nothing like these. Instagram people and Twitter people and celebrities. Um, and then, you know, it was like the climate of the world and, and impacted it too. I can't explain what it feels like when you are like in serious postpartum anxiety, having to go back on a national television show. I was driving from my home to the Capitol. I live in Virginia, right, right across from the Capitol and driving in. And I called my executive producer and I said, there's something very wrong happening and there's MAGA flags everywhere. And these people are very angry. I called my executive producer that morning and I was really scared driving to work to the ABC bureau. And I talked to my makeup artist, who was the only person in the bureau uh, at the time because of COVID. And she was scared too. And I said, something's happening. And we went on air and then I drove home. And again, I was still seeing like, just, it looked apocalyptic and that's not an exaggeration or hubris. And it really freaked me out when I got home. And then a few hours, people, the attack on the Capitol started happening. And I can't explain what it feels like to be that physically close, to have driven by the Capitol on my way to work and drive back, seeing all the flags, seeing all the trucks, seeing everything and saying something's going to go wrong. And then at the same time, being worried that like the world we're living in is going to kill my child. And it was just like this perfect storm of anxiety and intensity in the world and in my personal life. And I just remember holding her and crying and crying and crying and crying in her nursery, like primal weeping about the world and what yeah and so that it was all just a bad it was a bad sequence of things unfortunately um that happened and I felt like I had been so raw in so many ways when I was working at the view and it was like my dad's cancer miscarriage and then like the insurrection and postpartum anxiety like I don't have beautiful stories to share I mean I have some but like I've gone through a lot of shit in the last four years yeah Yeah. I'm sorry that you have gone through all of those things. And I think you could take any one of those events and isolate them. And it's a lot to deal with. And it's a lot to process. You know, my dad is has a terminal diagnosis. I'm so sorry. Yeah. And it's. um... Can I ask what it is? I never know when it's going to happen, but. I used to cry everywhere all the time. It is like having part of your body ripped out all the time, every day. And it is a raw, deep, it is like dying yourself. When my dad was first diagnosed, I, and he had glioblastoma, which is a rare form of brain cancer, and it's extremely aggressive. And when he was first diagnosed, I, it's like I wasn't in control of my body and my mind. And I went through this process with him where I was obsessed with healing him and the kind of cancer he had can't be healed with green juice and taking care of him and with my family. And I had so much trauma that I would like literally wake up with my hands shaking and my body shaking. And I remember being in the shower and trying to like wash myself and my hands would shake when I had like the bar of soap and trying to like wash my hair. And I think daughters in particular with their dads and all it's always horrible, but there is a connection that at least that I found that's really tense and raw. Like a part of me died with him. Like a, the part of my soul is will never be back. I just wanted to take his pain away and I just wanted to take anything away. And I used to pray at night that God would have given me brain cancer instead because I felt like 
he had so much more to give the world. And I still have trauma. I still have PTSD. I still have things that are long-term. My advice to you, not that you're asking it, but I'm just going to give it, is be as gentle with your heart and your soul and your spirit as possible because this is the worst thing I ever experienced. It's, I would never, ever, there's nothing, I would rather literally like amputate both my legs and go through that again. It's horrific. And I'm very, very sorry to hear that. And I, if you want to talk offline about anything, I feel like I know so much about cancer. I at actually this point. would because it is, you know, Western culture does not talk about death. To your point, we have all these amazing celebrations for birth and for gender reveals. And when there's funerals, it's, you know, it, it's all, it's miserable and no one celebrates. I was very angry when my dad was dying and was diagnosed because Americans do this the worst, I think. I mean, maybe it's all Western culture, but death is a process. It's a part of life. I know so much more about it than I ever could have imagined. It's like we want to avoid it. And even the way we do funerals, I got really obsessed with the way other cultures mourn and grieve. And I think that like Japanese cultures, Jewish culture, I love the idea of sitting oh, shiva. I beautiful. Wish I, I, lo- I love it. I wish I had done it with my family. We are not Jewish, so we didn't. But um, even in like Indian cultures and, and South Asian cultures, they shave their head. The men shave their head. And I feel like mourning and grief was and still is all consuming. My dad's been dead three and a half years now, but um, I was so not great afterward. And I I couldn't do things like almost non-functional in a lot of ways. And I found myself reacting to things incredibly strong in a way that is not normal. And I just wasn't great. But I think part of it is like the culture that we're living in doesn't allow grief and mourning and discussions of death because it makes people so uncomfortable for whatever reason. I completely agree with you. And I think that has to change. And you would think that after COVID, with there being so many deaths, I feel like there's a global grieving going on. And they don't even know that that's what they're experiencing because they don't know how to identify grief because we don't identify it in the world because we don't talk about it. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that um, I also there's this weird thing right now where people are like, snap back, COVID's over. And Again, this collective trauma we've all been through, this idea that we just all are going to move back and snap back to normalcy is not... It's not appropriate, actually. And and it's it's just not. And there needs to be a space to say, there needs to be a space for this to be processed. So, So let's go back to when you were having the emotional experience you were having, having just had a child, it's hard enough to go back to work as it is after you've had a baby a few months later. But I cannot imagine how hard it was was to go back into an environment that was a contentious environment. How long were you back at the view for before you decided, I can't do this anymore? And what was that breaking point for you? I always say that like the view was an incredible opportunity. And honestly, had COVID not happened and I didn't have a baby, I probably would have stayed. Um, But I feel like I have presented some of this is on me. Like I present, I don't open up to people very often personally. And when I am at work, I am at work. I normally am the foil in a situation where I'm always the odd person out, which is fine. I'm, I know what my job is and it's fine. Um, but the Trump years made everything even more chaotic because it's just so much division and so much intensity. And I did think just because I was working on an all woman show and the closest person in age to me was like 55. So she was still like 20 years older than me. I always have that at my work where there aren't women who are my generation. And it's really difficult to yeah. find allies. <laughs> yeah, I, sadly, uh, you know, for whatever that's worth. And I had also thought because if you had had a lot of women who had babies on the show, that there would be an understanding. And I also had been candid with my executive producers that I was going through a difficult time. I'm obsessed with my daughter. It's the best thing that's ever happened to me. It's incredible. I love of course. it. I'm so happy. To and there are ha- there are things that are really hard with it. It's both. Yes. So I went back and they seemed pissed that I was back. The first day I talked about uh, uh, planned uh, family leave, paid family leave and how I had this awakening about it. And I'd always been like soft supportive. But then afterward, I felt like American perspective on paid family leave is disgusting and harmful and the root of a lot of America's problems. Like starts with not giving women and families paid time to bond and heal. 
clearly. Um, so I came back the first day and on the second day, um, I was still really finding my footing and I have these pictures of myself, like breast pumping in the ABC bureau, oh like trying to like breast pump and take notes and get glammed up at the same time. And it's just a lot. And you're like, body isn't yours. So I was just trying, I was just trying to get back to semi-normalcy and I was joking with joy. And I said, um, you miss me so much. You miss me so much joy. I know you miss me. And she just snapped and was like, I did not miss you zero. And I was just shocked and sad because I thought that even despite our political differences, that we had had a respect and an understanding that we're both playing a role on this show. And it's just a fucking TV show, man. Um, and I just started lactating when it happened. Um, and thank God for Zoom at the time because it was like where this camera is right now was like here up. Um, but it started going through my shirt and I had to tell text my male executive producer, which is horrific that I was lactating and to please make sure the camera didn't get in the view in case my nibbles started showing through my shirt because it's going to make this even worse. And I was crying and uh, I was just humiliated and every way a woman can be humiliated. And again, going through very serious postpartum anxiety, trying to just like find my footing, trying to like just figure out if I was going to be able to do this show as a new mom. And uh you know, and then I texted him and it's all kind of a blur. I, I somehow like pulled it together enough. And it, again, COVID really helped because you didn't have to be on camera the whole time because of different shots with like different, you know, guests and things on. And um, I like got through the rest of the show, but I didn't talk that much or do that much. I just remember Dr. Sanjay Gupta was on and he was so lovely to me and he looked freaked out mm. by what had happened. I think probably because he's like a doctor. Um, and then I went back to my, uh, I had an office, not a dressing room, because again, I was at the ABC Bureau in DC and I threw up in the garbage can and I had a t panic attack, like a panic attack, like crying, calling my husband, calling my friends. I, I actually got hold of my brother who was like, you're done, you're done, you're done. We are done, Megan. I love you, we're done. And he's uh, he's in the military and he lives in Cornville, Arizona. And he's a great person to call because he's like so removed from media and he was like, this is it. We're calling it. And I said, I think we're calling it. Like, this is it. And I, and that was it. Mm. I didn't want to do it anymore because I want to have more babies if I can. And I do not want to have another baby like that. Whatever environment I'm in when I come back after having a baby has to be, be has to be not that. Yeah. I mean, being that vulnerable and being that raw and feeling that level of disdain, I've seen the amount of animosity that is projected onto you. And I have thought, what do you do with those hurt feelings? Where do you put them? I'm used to being really tough and strong and that's fine. Like I, I am a tough, strong woman. I really am. But being a mother has made me much more vulnerable in a lot of different ways, which is great. I like that part of myself too. And again, there were moments that I certainly didn't do myself any favors. Like there's moments that I reacted too strongly or that I there are things I'm not, I'm certainly not proud of now. Um, but I was going through a lot of shit and ABC News hired me when my dad was already diagnosed with brain cancer and they were well aware. I was very open with executives and with people I worked with. Just, you know, if I seem cold, which was always the thing that Megan's cold, it's because I'm just dealing with a lot of shit and I'm just trying, I'm not like going to start talking to you about all this personal stuff with every producer on The View. Um, and a lot of stuff played out in the media and the press and I could handle it for a while. Like there was a while where I was like, okay, you are the Republican on the view. You're a villain and they're paying you and people have to like dig coal mines for a living in this country and be feel blessed. And then I just thought it wasn't worth it anymore because I am sensitive and I am, I don't want to be part of the problem on a like mm. existential level. I don't want to keep tearing the country apart. And there was a certain point that I felt like maybe I was adding to it. I mean, there's a reason I'm not working at Fox News right now. Like I just, I can't, Mentally, emotionally, spiritually, as a new mother, I'm thinking about the world I want her to live in. And I would like to be part of solutions. That doesn't mean that like my politics have shifted, but it does mean that like I'd much rather have a conversation like this where we, I'm sure, can have disagreements um, than screaming and fighting and going to commercial and like blow up on Twitter. Yeah, it the cost is too high, me. right? The cost becomes too high where you're like, yeah, this is not worth it. The hit that I take, it's not the price is too high for me right now. And apparently I'm one of two people that ever walked away from The View without being fired, me and Meredith Vieira. Apparently that's it in 25 years. And they still sort of like talk shit about me on air, like something happened today apparently. And 
I'm moved on and and I'm very happy right now and I really am enjoying this like space I'm in. Um, I wish that leaving the view didn't feel like leaving Scientology. Like I wish it didn't feel so isolating and so um, it's just a TV show. But it there's a lot that that is taken from you in network TV. I have found and I've worked at NBC, Fox, ABC, and then a, a startup. So I've, I've and iHeartRadio. And then it's rough. It's rough what is done to women and how our everything is just commodity and everything is just that even the most sacred of things are are used for. But it sounds to me like you had to choose to either stay in your job or to live authentically. And you could not live authentically with where you were at at the time with staying with that in that job. So you had to leave. Yeah. People think I'm crazy. Look, my agent oh, no, was I get it. I get it. When I told my agent I was leaving, he was like, and again, not to be gauche, but like I had earned what I was being paid. Like I, I had earned sure. blood, sweat and tears. And I was very proud of the fact that I was like an extremely well-paid talent on ABC News. Because I do think sometimes, you know, how you're treated and how you're paid, like you should be treated and paid the way men Absolutely. are, um, So I was very proud of it. And I had two more years left in my contract. I wasn't going anywhere. Um, the president of the network really tried to talk me out of it. I just said what I'm saying to you that like, I want to have more children. When I'm thinking about what my daughter is going to see about me going forward, I don't want it to be that if you are a Republican and you're at a table of Democrats, you have to scream at each other and hate each other. And again, part of that was my doing because it was a format I fit into in the beginning. And then my head and my heart just were not in it anymore. And I am a gambler. I mean, like I love to actually gamble too. And I love to take risks and... I would always rather the world less traveled and figure it out. And I probably could have stayed at The View for like 10 more years if I really wanted, um, or at least like another five. I have a very acute understanding of my mortality and I would rather take risks and try new things and have conversations with people like you anytime I want, which I probably couldn't have if I was at ABC because they're strict about what interviews you can do. And I just wanted to take a risk and I couldn't do it anymore. And I remember the day that you left, I sent you a message saying, well done. Well done for actually honoring yourself and saying, I need to be in a place where I can actually speak and, you know, be who I am without getting shut down. Have you ever been in a situation? Because again, you have like, don't belittle with your success either. Like you have a Billy Big career too. For, for me, like there is, I cannot live that way. I cannot live in authentically. I'm not a bullshitter. I mean, when I say, I say what I mean. Totally. I'm not a liar. Totally. I cannot fake the funk. I can't either. If you want me to do something else, I am incapable of it. I'm the same way. I don't know how to do it. One of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you is because there seems to be no space where people can disagree in a way that isn't hostile or shaming. And people cannot learn publicly anymore. You can't afford to say something uh, or, you know, and then change your opinion on it as you learn differently. In order to learn, we have to make mistakes. And yet, if you're public at all, you can't do it publicly. So I, I find it um, very restrictive. What are your thoughts on cancel culture? Well, I find it puritanical. Um, I do think there are things, obviously, like a Harvey Weinstein situation where you're a serial rapist and uh, one of the great monsters of our time where you deserve to be like expelled from society totally. forever. And, you know, like there are... There are obviously people that by any rational, normal person's sense, we can all in agreement, any normal person thinks that they shouldn't be around. And there's other situations where uh, some people play sports, some people, everybody has different hobbies. My hobby, I like having dinner parties and getting a lot of people around and talking about shit. Like, I love different opinions like you. I love interesting people with interesting perspectives, no matter the space. That's my passion. Like, I love debating. I think that's why I like politics so much is I just love people and I love being challenged and I love having my worldview open no matter what people may think. Um, so I think again, like we're going to isolate, we're going to make spaces smaller if, if we, if people are scared to say anything and scared to have hard conversations and there's different situations. Like I was talking to a friend of mine. Um, I really, I'm, I've been cooking a lot more recently just because I've had a little bit more time and I really like Alison Roman's recipes and she's someone that had been canceled. I also really like Chrissy Teigen and her cookbook. 
And I was like, am I allowed to like these two? I'm allowed to have these two women's cookbooks. Like, is this allowed? They've both been apologetic and I don't think their lives and careers should be ruined for mistakes. Um, I've certainly messed up in my life on different occasions. And I, I think people should be given grace and forgiveness. I also think speech is really important in America, in all cultures. And I think people should be free and open to have tough conversations about tough issues. And I think when you shut it down, it's dangerous. And mm. I hate I, I hate cancel culture. I really do. But I I also feel like that term has been co-opted by some people where like there really are some people that deserve to like not be around. Totally. I agree with you. There's, there, there's a big difference between grabbing someone's ass in the supermarket checkout line and sexual assault, right? We're talking about the difference. There's black and white and then there's the gray. The world is now the judge and the jury. And so what, like, how do we open the conversation for the people who do need to come back, who should come back, who shouldn't yeah. be ostracized forever? How do we open that conversation in a way that is respectful and mindful? Well, I just think censorship of any kind is a historically a pathway to fascism in any metric of any place in history. It's very dangerous. And I think censoring people, you don't have to like them. You don't have to support them. You don't have to buy their product. But censorship of any kind scares me. I do think there is a pushback to it. For whatever it is worth, I have found um, in my just anecdotally in my personal life. And then more broadly, we're seeing culturally political pushbacks of it. I, I always say like, who likes living like this? Where if somebody says, a, you know, a off call, and again, I'm talking about respectful, normal mistakes. There was um, a woman, uh, Alexi McCammon, awesome reporter, so smart. I love her work. Hired to take over Teen Vogue and was fired for a tweet she sent out when she was in high school. That to me is just not, that's not a world I want to live in. I don't think you should lose your job from a tweet you sent in high school. It's idiotic. I did dumb shit in high school too. Thank God um, social media wasn't around when I was in high school. I think like what you're saying about Chrissy Teigen, more people have to put their hand up and say, is there a space for this person to come back in? Otherwise, how do we move out of it? We're going to be in this holding pattern of people being canceled. I just think people hate it. You know, it's not okay to say that in, you know, in interviews, but I do think people hate it. Sarah Silverman actually phrased this really eloquently. She said, I worry about the spaces people are then pushed to. If we reject everyone, where they go to is a much darker space than the space we're in, meaning I interpreted that as like a QAnon space, a radical, insane, you know, bowels of the internet that can lead to real danger. And I think forgiveness is really important in life. And I just, I don't like it. I hate it. Like, I... I find it puritanical and repressive. I really do. Yeah. And maybe that'll get me canceled after saying that on your show, but I don't really care. I mean, <laughs> well, I'm sure people have tried to cancel you thousands of times already, right? And they have not they been have. successful at it. So, I, you know what? It, I think people at the end of the day, really much like you, like you have a strong following, people respect authenticity and I'm not, you know, bullshitting anybody. And also, I do think people want to have conversations. I do think people want to hear the others. I want to hear the other side. Uh, there's a, I watch Rachel Maddow, but not every night, but I do watch her. Like, I want to know what people are thinking. I, will, I can disagree with that all day long, but it's really important to me that I don't get siloed because some of the most dangerous um, acts I think happen in the world is when you just don't, you think you're the only world that exists. And I think that happens with cancel culture when people think, this is the way you have to act. This is the way you have to behave. Nothing else well, is allowed. Well, I agree with you. And shortly after you and I made contact with each other, I sent you something to do with a pro-choice event that I was involved with. <laughs> and yeah. you were so funny. You <laughs> sent me back like, oh, you know that I'm pro-life. I was like, yeah, I know. <laughs> I was like, yeah. You were so nice about it. You were like lovely. And I was like, oh, thank you. Most people like treat me like a Mrs. Waterford but, from The Handmaid's Tale. So thank you. But you know, and, and but you <laughs> were so nice about it too. And the truth is, is I've been very public about having had an abortion. You've been very public mm -hmm. about being pro-life. And we can still find other things to talk about and not be rude and hostile to each other about this, about this issue. I'm also all tapped out on hostility. Like I'm all tapped out. The Trump yeah. years. And when I was growing up, my family's best friends were liberals. They just were. Like he, for whatever reason, the people that my dad gravitated towards were liberals in, in the Senate. They're extremely important people in my life that I would go so far as to say have taken up spaces as like pseudo parent figures now wouldn't have that if politics got in the way of that. 
I cannot live like this anymore. I don't want to. And I want America to come together and heal. And I'm just sick of the polarization. I'm sick of the anger. I'm sick of the hostility. I really, sounds corny, but I really do think like we have more in common than we do apart. I think when I die, I don't want to be like, oh, I spent like the majority of my life screaming at people and being screamed at because we disagree on things. It's just not what I want anymore. And I also think it's really dated. CNN averages like 300,000 viewers, which is roughly the amount of people that watch my Instagram stories. I think the format of The View is really dated. I think that they should have a whole like cacophony of different perspectives. There's lots of different kinds of liberals and conservatives and different viewpoints and ages. And I think, like you said, generationally, I think there should be more spaces for different generations. And I think that using that is unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, it's limiting what America is exposed to as well, right? Because if it is the same paradigm over and over, which is what these formats are, it's giving it's giving a certain kind of perspective and it's just keeping everyone in their little bubbles. You know, yeah, it's it's super interesting. When I was looking at the things that, you know, you and I maybe differ on, and I was curious to know what your thoughts were um, about, about the Me Too movement today. I thought Me Too was really important uh, in the beginning, obviously. Me Too was and still is important to me because of I worked at Fox under Roger Eales, and I have very close friends who experienced abuse under him. It was an absolutely horrific experience. It was horrific to work there during that time with that culture, basically feeling like your whole like community of people was used as a harem for a sociopath. Like, you want to talk about like shit in the media? Like, go through that. Um, and I felt survivor's guilt a little bit mm. because I he never he never did anything to me. Um, I think partly because he knew my dad. I think also partly. Um, as I understand it, I didn't fit the bill of hit the people he targeted as much. He targeted like people that, you know, but didn't have the kind of like support that I did. And maybe that's not true, but he never did anything to me that was weird in that way. He was weird, but not in that stuff. Um, so I felt like there was a reckoning that was like long overdue, way long overdue and with media and with women. And, um, there was a certain point where, um, I just got more and more confused about where the line was. And I will I will say where where I started getting confused was um, the Aziz Ansari accuser mm -hmm. um, who wrote a piece. And um, well, that and was I a gray area that, issue. That was a gray area yeah. issue for sure. For sure. So my, my question with the Me Too movement was just stuff like that, where I felt like I would have liked to have heard his side of the story in that moment. But I support women... I just know from my experience with my friends how hard it is to come out and be public about things that have happened to you and be public about the way you've been treated and sexually harassed and it's sometimes even more horrific. There's lots of like stories of the past five years of my life working in media that are dark and my Fox News Roger Ailes chapter is definitely a part of it. I remember when it, the story broke at the convention, at the Republican convention, and it was like, See, I remember everyone was looking at their phones and like seeing the Drudge headline and that he had been, you know, harassing people. And I think they said raping people and feeling like looking around, which one of us is it? Which one of these women that I love and work with was treated this way and worse? And again, it can't not impact you. The Roger Ailes um, experience was the beginning of like the loss of whatever mild innocence I had left in my 20s. Yeah, because I mean... I mean, mm -hmm. the Me Too movement has been going for 10 years before it went viral, and it was always about centering survivors. But the media jumped mm -hmm. onto it as a bandwagon, as a way to be able to create clickbait by like, who got Me Too'd next, as opposed to what the intention of the Me Too movement was, which is to offer support and, and recovery for women who had been sexually assaulted, either at the workplace or in life. I think having the Me Too movement is and was incredibly important and incredibly, and again, I wasn't involved at all. I just was an outsider, you know, reading about it and consuming the stories. I feel like the Me Too movement was a really great start, but I don't think it's over, sadly. It's I don't not, think and we have over. a lot of work to, to still do. You felt radicalized by watching Brett Kavanaugh. I wanted to ask you about what you meant by that. So Brett Kavanaugh happened after when I was on bereavement leave. So Please preface that I didn't watch it in the same way that I would have had I not been so sad um, and 
obviously distracted. I felt like the uh, his accuser, Chris, Chrissy Blasey Ford, correct? I felt like there were a lot of issues in her story. It was the first time again that I felt like I was semi-comfortable publicly being like, I just have more questions. And what was interesting to me about uh, Brett Kavanaugh was that I think people had assumed that people would watch him and automatically take her side. And I think there were a lot of women in the country that saw him and saw their husband or their brother or their friend having his possible potential career ending because of something that had allegedly happened. And again, I don't remember the exact details of the story when they were in high school, I believe, was that high school? And I felt like, yeah, I, I didn't, it's not that I didn't believe her because I do believe that like something happened, but I didn't know if it was at the the degree that she retold it. And I felt like the media's take on her and him didn't do anything any justice. I felt like they put him in a corner of his, his, his you know, being a conservative judge on the Supreme Court and then her being a, a victim of sexual assault, allegedly from, you know, her perspective, not his. Um, and I hated the way the media covered it. I hated it. And it, it felt like it did everything disjustice. I felt like it gave her story disjustice, his reaction disjustice. I felt bad for his wife. I hated everything about it. So I don't remember saying that, but it's still true. But I think it was more like the media's take on it as well. So even if you felt like the media was manipulating narratives, but you still felt like something had happened with her, I, I'm still trying to understand why you, did you feel sorry for her at all though? Yeah, I did. Yeah. And I felt like, I don't remember why she came forward or if she was pressured to, or if, um, you know, or if she just saw him being nominated and then decided that she wanted to to tell her story. Yeah, that's what um, happened. She felt a responsibility that he was being nominated for the Supreme Court. And despite living her life as a professor at Stanford for many years, felt like she had an obligation to the American people to not have someone who she had had this experience with um, be nominated and, and get a seat on the Supreme Court. So I Sarah's. And the allegation was just, again, I apologize, that he had harassed her when she was in high school or, or high school or college at a party, right? Well, the allegation was that he had sexually assaulted her at a party when they mm -hmm. were, she was 17 years old and I, I don't know exactly his age, but yeah, that was mm -hmm. the allegation. That was her experience. Yeah, I think it's all horrible, I think. And again, maybe it's bad to say that I felt bad for him too, but I did. And I think it's because, um, like, I felt obviously horrible for her because I felt like I can't even fathom having to, like, she, this is what the moment she will be known for. You know, like, she'll be known as her hand up and her glasses on and um, testifying. And I think testifying is very brave, no matter who you are, what your perspective. Um, I think it was Senator um, Collins, I believe, that she just was like, it's it's a, really horrible story and a horrible, you know, account. But I, it was, it didn't rise to the level of him not being on the Supreme Court. But I do know and understand that there are many men and women who disagree with me and disagree with her and think that he should, has no business there. I know he's still incredibly polarizing. Just felt bad for his family. I felt bad for her family. I mean, I felt like it became highly politicized. Well, it was. And that was the part that I think took away from the truth and the essence of what she was doing, because there's no way anyone in their right mind would go from living their family life in Palo Alto and doing carpool and soccer camps and what have you with their kids to putting themselves into the public domain to be criticized. And I mean, the, her treatment was horrendous how she was how she was. She, no one would do that in their right mind unless they felt really strongly about what they were doing. And mm -hmm. I think that it is what the media did with politicizing it did take away from the actual point of what she was doing, which is she had an experience that she was sexually assaulted. She thought America should know. And again, the media's manipulation actually detracted from what her purpose was, which... Do you, you're a politics aside, which I'm just going to assume is more left than me. Do you think he shouldn't be on the Supreme Court over over her testimony? I do. Mm -hmm. And 
the reason I say that is also because I have spent many, many hours speaking to her based on what I have experienced with her and the information that she shared with me and the people in her life that I've spoken to. My belief is that what she testified is 100% accurate. And for me, I don't want someone making decisions for the country who has behavior that, that he had. I've seen firsthand what it's done to her kids and the safety of her kids. I mean, you're talking about the fear of what could happen to your kids because of the hatred that's project your, your daughter because of what's projected onto you. I mean, this is a woman who did not grow up being a public person and suddenly got thrust into this, yeah. you know, situation with, I mean, truckloads of hate letters that came to this woman at Stanford and having to live literally in Fort Knox with fear of her death threats for her kids. I mean, horrendous, horrendous with no concept of like, how do I deal with this? I absolutely think that he should not be on the Supreme Court. I think that's very sad. I did not, I actually didn't know she had children. I mean, not that it matters one way or the other, um, but I can't imagine because it's one thing to be sort of like a political celebrity of some kind. It's another thing to be someone who is famous for, you know, testifying about a sexual assault and having it be so controversial and so politicized. Um, I hope that she is okay. And I hope that she has good people around her and is in a space that she feels like she can heal no matter what, like just heal from the, the trauma of media shitstorms, which is its own abuse. In and of it itself. absolutely is. I hate what we do to people who speak out about anything. Again, I, I don't, you know, I wasn't completely, obviously, dead said that to you, I wasn't like completely on board. Maybe I would have been had I had the chance to talk to you or talk to her more in depth. And again, I really preface that I was half drunk in Mexico on bereavement leave the entire time when it happened. Um, but, uh, you know, I really, I, I just feel bad for her. I feel bad for having to be put in a situation where you feel like that's where you're, where you, where you feel like you have to go in front of the entire world and testify in front of Congress. Um, I don't know. It's, it's a really sad part of our, a part of the past few years too. And, uh, I really just hope, not that she gives a shit whether I think one way or the other, but I hope that she is doing well, as well as she can. I think it takes a long time to recover from public humiliation and public shaming and yeah. um, public criticism and the projection of so much hate and animosity and vitriol. And she is a mom who is a working mom who felt like she needed to do the right thing because she is a very ethical human being. And I don't think she ever could have anticipated the, the depth of insanity and craziness that descended upon her life and her family's life. And I think that will take a long time to recover. Is she still at Stanford? She is. Teaching? She is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, good on her for continuing to do that. It's just interesting. We need more media and trusted outlets because it's all it's all politicized it's all it's all fair game at this point and it's a real shame that those more of those spaces don't exist yeah and i think that um coverage of things like that innately become tribal and this is something i really had to be more conscious of is like i can definitely be in spaces where i'm like it's my side and the left is doing this and it's awful and i i have had i have to consciously like unwrap myself from it even like hearing your experience with her like that's illuminating for me a little bit, you know, like I, I, I'm open to the fact that I maybe was wrong. Okay. Like, you know, I'm, you know, he's still on the Supreme Court. So maybe people would be angry with that answer, but I'm open to hearing your opinion and your perspective. But I find that it's hard for me to take things like that seriously when someone like Jeffrey Tubin, who has masturbated on a Zoom call in front of women, is still allowed to do common legal commentary on CNN. He should so like, be. I automatically, I automatically won't watch CNN if, in not just her case with that perspective, but anything legal in that situation, because I'm already like, well, you have a biased perspective and you're also like, as far as I'm concerned, a sexual predator of some kind. Um, I, I think, I believe that's illegal. I assume that like masturbating in front of people when they don't want to is illegal. Um, 
And like, why, why is that okay? It's not, it's wow. not okay. No. It's just not okay. There's nothing okay about it, you know, and there's a real double standard that we mm-hmm. see across the board, gender, race, socioeconomic background. There's so many factors that go into decisions that are made, as we know. The people who comment on current events, I wish we were more responsible with some of the people we put on TV to I couldn't agree it. with you more. And guess what? Those voices that we want to be commenting to be a part of, anytime we've got one group who have the floor, that's a problem for me. I want more mm-hmm. voices there because I want more perspectives. That is a broken paradigm and why I think the world is really hungry for a new type of programming because mm-hmm. we need more voices. We must have opinions other than our own at the table. Even like in the in the example of Jeffrey Tubin, he's just one example. Like there's no other legal commentators on the planet. There's not one person in the world that you think could do that job on CNN. And I think there's also people, there's a phenomenon specifically with the generation of boomers that they just never retire and they never step down and they never, like I even felt like when I was at The View, I was like, okay, four years, let's let another woman have an opportunity. I am sick of the people across the board who are just on TV forever saying the same dated opinion. Maybe you and I need to come up with a good format. <laughs> I'm happy to, to have any discussion. I'm in a place of just like open-mindedness and like trying to just like go with what's meant to be right yeah, now. Yeah, the path of least resistance. Where are you at with finding a space for you to communicate? Because you obviously have really powerful, strong opinions, you know, you should have a space. You should have a space where you're not squashed (laughs) and that you're supported in what it is that you want to say. So um, where is that space for you now? Um, I don't know. I've had a lot of like discussions with different people since I left The View. And um, I mean, like between us and your millions of listeners, um, I feel a little like I have a scarlet letter on me right now because I was very vocal about what I considered like a toxic environment at a major network. I'm surprised Um, you went NDA'd on that. Well, they tried. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't sign NDAs under any circumstances. Like, like it's not, it's not, silence is the worst thing I could possibly, being silenced for any reason is like, Uh, it's awful. I think if they should not exist, I don't think any person in any, like, victims of sexual harassment. I know that um, Gretchen Carlson has a whole thing wanting victims of sexual harassment not to have to sign non-disclosure agreements. Like, if you have nothing to hide, why are you asking for Mm -hmm. people to be silent? I I think they should borderline not exist. So when you say a scarlet letter, it's basically people are afraid of hiring you because you're going to tell the truth about their organization. And that makes them feel vulnerable because they they don't want the truth out there necessarily. I'm not a company girl. Like, and there's people at different networks and uh, companies across the world, like, you know, you're a company person, you're a reliable person that will toe the line for companies indiscretions and, you know, even small things that you think are, aren't great. When you say um, you, you mean not me. <laughs> no, no. I mean, like, 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 I, not you. I just mean like, I'm and not you I'm either. Not a, yeah, no, like, I think that obviously you're not. And again, I probably would like. I could really rule the world if I was a company person. If I was someone who was just like, just do what networks say, don't cause drama, toe the line, be adorable, don't talk about things that are hard. Like, I could probably like have whatever I want at this point, but I would be miserable. You'd be dying Um, inside and you'd be bored shitless and so would I. (laughs) Yes, yes. But I definitely think there are people like at networks who are like uncomfortable around me, like friends who are people I thought were friends that not just at ABC, but other places. And I think it's because I like went out guns blazing and I was like, I'm not going to be polite. I don't want any other women coming up after me being treated this way when they have baby, period. Yeah. And that's the point of speaking up about stuff as well. That's difficult is so that other people just know what the truth is. And then it's up to them whether they want to put themselves in that environment or sign up for that or whatever the circumstances are. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I am really curious to see where you know, and how everything unfolds for you. And I'm just, um, I'm pleased that we got to chat today. And thank you for, you know, being open and and willing. And thanks for showing up. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Amanda. I'm such a fan, like I said, and I really appreciate you taking the space and time. And I love your show. I love your work. So, um, you know, 
keeping a woman who's not going to be a company person and put down to. So thank you again for taking the time and, um, you know, being open to share so many things with me as well. I'm going to have to go back and rewatch the Brett Kavanaugh trial and her testimony again. Yeah, I'm curious what you think. I will. Stay tuned. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the conversation, please support the podcast by commenting, liking, and subscribing to wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And you can follow me on social media at Amanda Academy on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you want more of the conversation content and you want to delve just a little bit deeper into many of the subjects that we talk about on here, then I invite you to join myself and many other like-minded women in the newly launched The Conversation community. This is a private and safe space to have the hard conversations that make life just a little bit easier. You can join up at amandacademy.com and I'll see you there.